Let's just pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you to open up our hearts this morning. We give our hearts unto you. Help us put aside any distractions. Help stir faith in our hearts so we can mix your word with faith and see it come alive in our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of my message this morning is Triumph in Surrender. And in that we will look at being the aroma of Christ. So if you've got your Bibles with you, please turn with me to the book of Corinthians, the second book. Chapter 2, and we'll read from verses 12. It's also going to appear on the screen behind me if you don't have your Bibles with you. So Paul says, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened the door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you. You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are the letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence We have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. In the first two verses, 12 and 13, Paul as he usually does, is very real and very open. And as he writes to the church in Corinth, he simply says, God opened the door for me in Troas, but I had no peace of mind. And I had to go to Macedonia to meet Titus. The reason he says that is that he had written a letter before that, a very open, a very heartfelt letter where he poured out his soul and his concerns to the church. And Titus had been with the church in Corinth and had news of how they had responded, of how they were doing. So he was eager to hear from them, so much so that he left Troas and went on to Macedonia. And then seemingly, as Paul tends to do in his letter, he digresses. He digresses and begins an epilogue of thanksgiving, which sets the theme for this message. He says, but thanks be to God, who leads us as captives, 
in Christ's triumphal procession. And in his thanksgiving, he uses an imagery that the church would have been familiar with. And that image is behind me. It is the image of a Roman triumph. In those days, the Roman triumph was a grand, occasional, but it was loud, it was captivating, it was a fascinating spectacle. And these triumphal marches were only reserved for those conquerors or rulers who had gone to battle and had won an outstanding victory. And when I think of our days, probably the closest thing that we have right now is the victory parade in Moscow, or maybe for sports people, when your team wins a tournament or a title and there is an opener bus parade and the streets are flocked with fans, or if you're around during the Olympics and the totals going through the villages and crowds and crowds will just line up cheering on the button carrier, that's probably the closest image that I can think of, but that still doesn't quite come close to the grandeur of these Roman triumphs. On this day, crowds will flock to the streets in their thousands, and you would have the general, the emperor, the ruler, come riding in on his chariots led by four white horses. In the more elaborate occasions, and this shows just the ego of these rulers. Some would have elephants pull them in on their, on their chariots. The processions were so long, you would have the victorious soldiers who had fought with the emperor. You would also then have wagons of spoils of plunder, which they would throw out to the crowds. You would have musicians, dancers, and singers all in there. And then in there, you would also have the defeated soldiers the defeated kings in their chains being pulled in such a humiliating fashion. In fact, such was the humiliation of that occasion for those who were captured that it says the great Queen Cleopatra chose to take her own life than to be caught and to be dragged through the streets of Rome because there was, that was no such place for a king or a queen. And then when the triumph made its way through the streets and reached its final destination on the Jupiter Hill, the captured soldiers would be slaughtered, particularly those who had resisted, who had been defiant. But then there were those who may have surrendered in their will, had been compliant and be brought along. Those soldiers may be spared their lives and potentially sold into slavery. These grand triumphal processions declared loudly, visibly, and clearly that Rome had won. Rome had the victory, and their enemies had lost. So Paul uses this imagery and makes this point, the first point, that firstly, King Jesus is the triumphant ruler. His Enemies have lost, and he has won. Not even death could hold him down. And in Colossians 2, Paul also, the second time we use the same phrase that he uses here in triumph, Paul uses that same phrase when he talks about Jesus and says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, 
he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We serve a triumphant king who has defeated his enemies once and for all. They tried to kill him, but God raised him from the dead in a grand fashion to show that not even death can thwart God's plans for us. No situation you face, no person against you, no word, no lack, no illness can stop God's masterful plan for your life. Because we are led by the victorious one, and that is Jesus. So this helps us understand why Paul burst forth in thanksgiving, yet as he talks about being led as captives. And in fact, the more accurate translation of this says, but thanks be to God who leads us into triumph. And it's hard to imagine because in any inconceivable manner to be a slave, to be held captive, is no reason to give thanks. It is humiliating to be dragged before in chains before people clearly knowing that you have been defeated and you have lost. But there is no greater privilege than to be captured by the love of Christ and to be led by him. To be a willing captive of Jesus means to surrender our lives willingly to the one who can save us and who can lead us in our lives into triumph. But surrendering is not easy. In fact, as I'm talking, some of us are probably feeling the very real effects of having surrendered or trusted and yet that not working out. The pain of being hurt, the pain of opening up ourselves to be vulnerable and yet to find ourselves disappointed. You see, when we surrender, we let go and it is fearful to let go. When we surrender, we are no longer in control We can no longer control the timing or, in fact, the details of how our lives will end up. But as I'm sharing, the Holy Spirit is probably speaking to us about areas in our lives where he wants us to surrender to him. Times when we have been trying to strive in our own strength to accomplish things, but he wants to take control. Friendships, relationships. Jobs, things that we are doing that in our hearts we know are not quite making us happy, but God is calling us to surrender to him. You see, God is a loving father, and God does not force things upon us. So when we are in control, he will not take control. But the minute we step aside from the driving seat and get into the passenger seat and let him take control, He takes charge, and he leads us into victory. And the key to surrendering is to know who we are surrendering to. If I was driving through the streets of London and I got lost, which is probably more a when than if, given my driving experience, I would feel very comfortable getting into the passenger seat of a London taxi and being driven by the cabby driver to where I'm going because I know that he knows how to get us there. My willingness to surrender 
is dependent upon who I'm surrendering to and my confidence in that person. And we can be confident when we surrender to Jesus because the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way, just like us. He faced the temptations that we faced, but he overcame. And his life, right to the point of death on the cross, is a perfect example. Faced with this, he says to his father, Lord, if it's your will, take your cup away from me, but not my will, your will be done. And today, God is calling us to surrender our lives unto him. He invites us to surrender unto him, and we can have confidence that he will not let us down because he has overcome. And also, when we surrender, we are not given up. We might be given up in doing things in our own strength, but we are not given up hope. In fact, actually, that moment is the beginning of things turning around. The book of John uses a great analogy when he talks about that Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Just as the death of a seed marks the beginning of its life and harvest, the moment we surrender marks the death of us trying to do things in our own strength and the beginning of the turnaround in that situation when God takes our lives and leads us into where he wants us to get. When we surrender, we are giving our lives to the one who speaks into things and they change. Who creates things out of nothing. Who created us in our own image. And who wants you this morning who wants us all to know that he will not let us down. And so Paul carries on as he talks about being led as captives, but being led into triumph. He also goes on to talk about how God uses us as the aroma of Jesus and spreads that aroma everywhere we go. Again, it's a very similar imagery to to that same triumphant procession. So along that chain would be people carrying incense, perfumes, waving it round. The temple doors will be burst open so that the incense will just permeate the atmosphere. They would wave it around to the point where the whole environment had that distinct smell. And to the generals, to the crowds, to the soldiers, that smell was the distinct smell of their victory. No matter where you were, whether you had smelt it for the first time or not, that smell remained with you so that when you smelt it again, you would remember and recognize the occasion when you first came across that smell, the smell of a victorious conqueror. Now, it's interesting because a lot of research has been done into smells. Um, you might probably not notice this when it comes to your post, but even junk mail these days is being fragrance. 
because apparently they found that if you fragrance um, a laundry product with fresh linen, people are more likely to buy it. A petrol station did an experiment of pumping the smell of coffee through and found out that actually the sale of coffee had increased by 300%. So the use of smell and the power of smell is becoming a new phenomenon and industry in itself. And as we think about it, smell connects us intimately to a person, to a memory, to a sensation, or even to a feeling. And in the same way, Paul says that God uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. We all have an aroma, and hopefully it's a sweet one. (laughs) My grandma in Ghana had a very distinct smell. The perfume, or so she said as was perfume, the perfume that she used was so distinct and actually reminded me of a mosquito repellent. (laughs) I would know as I approached the house whether my grandma was around because I could smell it. And if I could smell it, I would go around the back into the house to avoid being smothered by one of her hugs. And just as we all have a smell in the natural, we all also have a spiritual smell. We leave a spiritual aroma wherever we go. And we can all ask ourselves, when we spend time with someone, were we encouraging? Did we show them Christ? Did we show them acts of kindness? Did we leave the aroma of Christ? And as people who have surrendered our lives to Jesus and are now live our lives through him, we have his nature, we have his mind, we have his heart, we have his word that dwells so richly within us, so that wherever we go, whatever we do, we spread the aroma of Christ. And like any smell, like any perfume, aftershave, spray, some like it, And some don't. But we are merely instruments of Christ. And irrespective of the human response, the aroma delights God because it centers on his son Jesus, whom he loves. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see that his character was, his aroma was characterized by not only what he said, but also what he did. And there are times when we find ourselves in situations where the obvious response does not lend itself to an occasion to preach the gospel, but actually through a kind act, through a hand on the the shoulder, a comforting word. But in those moments, through that action, we are like the fragrance of Christ that is being diffused within us that connects people to Jesus. When we are generous, when we give even if it costs us, when we give more than is expected of that instance, we spread the aroma of Jesus. When we encourage people, 
when we see the good in them, when we don't focus on their faults, we are like the fragrance that connects people to Jesus. When we help people by encouraging them and getting them through each day, pouring hope into their situations, we are like the aroma of Christ, helping people to connect to Jesus. But more than ever, in our current days, I believe God wants us to be people who are compassionate, who are gracious, and who are forgiven. And it is not to say that we turn a blind eye to what is wrong. But just like Jesus, in that situation when he was presented by that lady who had committed adultery, he showed compassion to her and told her not to go and carry on in her way. I want us to watch a video, a very brief video. This video is a remarkable story of a lady who had her only son shot. And it tells of the remarkable story of how, in being the aroma of Christ, worked with them, and in the end, the murderer ended up giving his life to Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In a small apartment building in North Minneapolis, a 59-year-old teacher's aide sings praise to God for no seemingly apparent reason. Indeed, if anyone was to have issues with the Lord, it would be Mary Johnson. For all you've done for me. He never had a chance. In February 1993, Mary's son, Loramian Bird, was shot to death during an argument at a party. He was 20, and Mary's only child. My son was gone. The killer was a 16-year-old kid named O'Shea Israel. I wanted justice. He was an animal. He deserved to be caged. And he was. Tried as an adult and sentenced to 25 and a half years, O'Shea served 17 before being recently released. He now lives back in the old neighborhood, close to Mary. This close. He lives next door. Next door. How a convicted murderer ended up living a door jam away from his victim's mother is a story not of horrible misfortune, as you might expect, but of remarkable mercy. A few years ago, Mary asked if she could meet O'Shea here at Minnesota's Stillwater State Prison. As a devout Christian, she felt compelled to see if there was some way, if somehow, she could forgive her son's killer. What'd she say to you? I believe the first thing she said was, look, you don't know me, I don't know you, let's just start with right now. And I was befuddled myself. O'Shea says they met regularly after that. When he got out, she introduced him to her landlord, who, with Mary's blessing, invited O'Shea to move into the building. Today, they don't just live close, they are close. Clearly, Mary was able to forgive. Unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son. But the forgiveness is for me. It's for me. For O'Shea, it hasn't been that easy. I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. I'm learning how to forgive myself. And I'm still growing towards, you know, trying to forgive myself and what it is I've done. To that end, O'Shea is now busy proving himself to himself. 
He works at a recycling plant by day and goes to college by night. He says he's determined to pay back Mary's clemency by contributing to society. In fact, he's already working on it, singing the praises of God and forgiveness at prisons, churches, to large audiences everywhere. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. Which explains why Mary can sing her praise of thanks to her audience of one. Steve Hartman, CBS News, Minneapolis. all you've done for me. We are the aroma of Christ. What a remarkable story. As I watched it, I don't know about you, but I was asking myself, if I found myself in that situation, would I be able to forgive? And I hope so. But Paul asks the same question a little bit later in the same chapter that we've been looking at. When he says, but who is equal to such a task? So by building up this great picture of being led as captives in the triumphal procession and God in his grace using us to be people who diffuse the aroma of Christ, he asks the question, but who is equal to such a task? The fact is that our human will, our human ability alone is not enough to enable us to sustain, to sustain such a lifestyle. And one of the reasons why we hear that those who do New Year's resolutions so often don't see it through is that apparently the average length of time that an individual on their own can remain committed to a cause, to a commitment, is 90 days. The truth is, on average, it's probably a little bit less. But to go beyond that 90 days, we need something or someone beyond ourselves that enables us to carry on going and to maintain that commitment. And this is why, I guess, the passage in Zechariah 4 has become such a bedrock of the Christian faith, because it says, for it is not by might, it is not by power, but it is by my spirit, says the Lord. And Paul I guess phrases it in a slightly different way as he finishes off verse 5 of chapter 3 when he says, For not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything from God, but our competence comes from God. Our ability to do all that we've been called to do, to be just like Mary did, to forgive in the most difficult situations, to love when it hurts or costs us. That competence, that ability comes from God. It is in our moments of weakness, in our sense of inadequacy, that we remember, as we've been studying for the last couple of weeks and will continue doing, that his power is made perfect in our weakness. If I can ask the band to now come up. I'm going to draw a message to a close. And as we did last week and as Brett shared, we're just going to enter into a time of worship, a prolonged time of worship. And Phil and the band are going to lead us in that. We're just going to begin by opening up our hearts to God. And partway through that time of response, I'll come back up again and I'm going to give us an opportunity Two specific opportunities. Firstly, 
for anyone here who has not surrendered or given their lives to Jesus for the, for the first time. There will be an opportunity to come forward and we can pray with you. And secondly, if there is any aspect of your life that today you want to surrender to him, again, you can come forward and we'll pray with you and believe that King Jesus, who is all victorious, who leads us into triumph, will never let us down and will be with us every step of the way. Amen.